Good morning, St. Clair. It is good to be with you on this fine Super Bowl Sunday morning. If any of you are like me, you're believing for one of two things. One would be that the Rams kick the Patriots' butt. And two would be that if the Patriots start to do what they always do, that the Lord would return so that I don't have to witness Tom Brady do another celebration and I throw another parade and... I don't want to do that dance again. I've seen it happen too many times. (laughs) Well, if you're new here, my name is Will Albert. I'm one of the interns here at St. Clair. Uh, And I am excited and also nervous this morning to preach what God has, has placed on my heart. And before I begin to jump into the scripture and to, and to the parable that Christina read for us, I wanted to just kind of submit to you that this parable has just been deeply sobering to me. I've spent a lot of time reflecting on my own life, and I've just found that I don't have this all figured out, and I'm on the journey with you. Um, This is not me preaching at you. This is me walking with you. Um, And so I just want to start off by saying that um, if I get excited and passionate today, Please don't interpret that as me (laughs) coming down hard on you, but I I deeply care for you, and I want to see you guys get this. And so that's really my heart behind behind the the thought and the teaching today. Um, And then the last thing I want to say before I just jump right in is that I think in the West, oftentimes we confuse conviction and condemnation. I think we, we confuse those two words because... I think conviction, what it is, is the inner working of the Holy Spirit. And it's that nudge that pushes us to repentance. It pushes us to change, to change the way we think, which in turn changes the way we act. And that's actually a good gift from God because it makes us more Christ-like. But condemnation is the exact opposite. It's when we feel the weight of sin to the point where it feels actually so heavy that we feel trapped. We feel like we can't actually leave that place. And that's not what I want for us today. So I don't want anyone to feel condemned. But if you feel the working of the Spirit from what I say today, know that that is actually a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And that's, that's from God. So I just, I just wanted to start off with that. And it was funny. I remember I was reading through all the parables and thinking about, okay, what am I going to preach on when I do this parable series? And the Lord kind of revealed this passage to me, and I read it, and I went, okay, um, I don't know why, why you want me to preach this, but I guess I'm going to be faithful. And so I was thinking about a story, and I remember there was this one day where my wife, on uh, my day off, she was like, honey, can you, you know, it's your day off while you're at home, you know, maybe just tidy up around the house. And I'm like, babe, for you, I, I can do that. That is... I can totally do that. That is easy. All I got to do is like do the dishes, take out the trash, make the bed. It'll take me like 30 minutes tops. We done. And I got the whole day. And so I did what every good husband would do. I did what I wanted to do for the first half of the day. I, uh, you know, I woke up. I, you know, got a workout in. I walked over to the coffee shop, read a little bit, you know, had, had my time, did what I wanted to do. So I was feeling good. And it was like about 2 o'clock, and I'm like, my wife, Nikki, she doesn't get home until 4.30. So 
at the latest, even if I started at four, I would be good. Like I could, I could start at four, knock, those, knock that stuff out, and before she gets home, it would be like all done, and it would just be good. And it's two o'clock, and I look outside, and I literally see her reversing into the driveway, and I'm like, oh my gosh. The fear of God has never set over my heart so quickly, and I'm just like, what have I done? I've done nothing. Why is she home so early? And so I get up off the couch and I just like fly up off the couch and I'm like running around frantically. What do I do? What do I do? And I can see her walking up and I'm like, I don't even know why I'm up because I'm already like, there's nothing I can do. I'm just caught. And so she walks in and she comes in through the back and she walks through the kitchen and she goes, hey, how was your... And she doesn't even finish. She sees the dishes and she sees like nothing's been done. And she just looks at me and goes, so what did you do today? And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me explain. Let me explain. I was going to get to it. I, I swear I was going to do it. I just, I didn't know you were coming home at two o'clock. I thought you were coming home like when you normally come home. And what had happened was that day she came home early from work because she had gotten home early. And I share that story, that funny story to say that I think that story in some ways reflects a lot of what the parable reflects in that I had my own interests in mind. I had my own desires that I wanted to accomplish, the things that I wanted to do, and I placed those ahead of the things that my wife had asked me to do. And when she came home at an uninspected time, I wasn't prepared. I actually wasn't ready. I was too concerned and too focused on my own desires, and I wasn't thinking about the needs of of, of her that she had asked me. And in the same way, I think Jesus gets at that by this parable in asking some of these questions. Are we living a life of preparation? And do we have his kingdom in mind or are we living for ourselves? And so that's kind of what we're going to touch on um, today. But before we jump into the parable, I want to highlight a little bit of context. Um, for those of you that know me, I like to do this because I don't enjoy taking scripture out of the larger story. Um, Dave mentioned that as one of the principles of missional family, but story is important to us. And so we want to highlight the story. We want to make sure that we understand the story. And so we see that Jesus, at the end of chapter 11 in Luke, right before we get to our parable in chapter 12, he is eating a meal with the Pharisees. And Jesus, being the smart man that he is, he never turns down a free meal. And so he's in the house with the Pharisees, and they're about to eat, and he doesn't wash his hands before they partake of the food, and the Pharisees are just indignant. They're furious. They're like looking at him, and they're like, how dare this rabbi not wash his hands? And for the rest of the meal, they are just constantly fixated on how can we trip him up? How can we, you know, mess him up to kind of catch him in his words? And ultimately, they were unsuccessful, but they were furious. While this was all taking place, a large crowd had gathered around the house where Jesus was uh, eating a meal. And the crowd began to get so big because of Jesus' popularity that people actually began to get trampled. And so Jesus goes outside to address the crowd and to address his disciples who were there also. And he says, do not be afraid of those people who speak hypocritically because they may have a life of cleanliness on the outside, but on the inside they are actually dirty. And then Jesus exhorts 
his disciples and goes into a section talking about fear and anxiety. Jesus, he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body because God the Father cares deeply for you. He also reminds them about public acknowledgement. He says, acknowledge me in the public. And when you are tested, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say at the proper time. You see, he's equipping them and training them, telling them what to do. And then there's the parable of the rich fool where the man, he stores up all of these treasures in a barn. And as he begins to store them up, the night that he is about to build his new barn to fill more of his treasures, his life is required of him. And he realizes that the life that he had been living and all the treasures he had stored up, he couldn't take them with him. And then finally, one of the most beautiful portions of scripture um, that I, I love is when Jesus talks about anxiety. And he tells the disciples, do not worry about the clothes on your back or the food on your table because the Father will provide you every need. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that's the context with which we reach the passage that we're looking at for today. And so for those of you that have been with us, we've been looking at the parables. And a parable is simply when Jesus takes something unfamiliar and he bridges the gap with something familiar. So he's taking the kingdom of God and saying the kingdom of God is like this. And then he's saying, you know this, so I want to bridge the gap so that you understand. That is his most brilliant concept, is using a parable to describe things that are difficult for us to understand. Now, what's interesting about this parable is that it's quite ordered and logical. I wasn't able to get the slides up, but hopefully you'll be able to follow with me. We see that Jesus follows kind of this three-tiered structure. He issues a command, that's the first part, and then he issues a blessing. He says, if you are to obey my words, then this is the blessing that you will receive. So the command, the blessing, and then the third part is the warning. Jesus says, if you are to disobey, there actually is a warning and a consequence for your actions. And so within this parable, we see this structure played out, a command, a blessing, and a warning. And so let's look at the parable. Verse 35 says this, stay dressed and ready for action and keep your lamps burning. Now in the King James Version, the good old faithful, it says, gird your loins. And so while that, while that sounds funny, there is a little bit of a cultural context to what's going on here. So the men at that time, they would have worn robes And during times of leisure, they would wear their robes all the way down to their ankles. Now, when it was time to work, what they would do is they would pull their robe up and they would tie it with a belt or a garment of some sort to keep their legs free and unencumbered from movement. But it took a level of preparation. They had to do that act first and prepare themselves for work. There was an act of preparation. In the same way, To keep a lamp burning took preparation. The wick had to be a right height. It couldn't be too long or it would break, and it couldn't be too short or else it would get smothered by the oil. And the oil had to be the certain level. It couldn't be too low or else the flame would burn out, and it couldn't be too high or else it would drown the flame. 
There was a level of preparation that was required there as well. And so I think what Jesus is getting at by saying this is that we are to live a life of preparation. Verse 36, to continue in the first little command section, says, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and he knocks. And so what would happen typically during this time if a master was to leave his house, his servants would be in charge. Now, what's interesting about a wedding feast in particular is that weddings, feasts are essentially wedding receptions as we know them now today, but they were not the way that we know them today. Our typical wedding receptions are maybe, um, you know, an afternoon or an evening and then everyone goes home that night or the day after. But actually in this culture, wedding feasts would last many days, sometimes even up to a week. And so when the master would leave, the servants did not know what time he would return. It was actually unexpected. That's a practice we need to come back to, by the way. Next person that get married is at St. Clair. We need to have like a week-long celebration because <laughs> that is awesome. I don't know why we lost that as the church, but we need to bring that back. <laughs> So that was the command. So we are to be prepared. That's the first section, right? You're tracking with me so far? The second part, the blessing section, verse 37, says this. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Listen to these words. I don't know about you, but this is probably the most exciting portion of this passage, and I hold on to this deeply. Imagine this. You see, this is something that Jesus has done already. We know this from John chapter 13, when Jesus humbled himself and served the disciples. He girded himself and washed the disciples' feet, and actually Jesus is saying, for those that obey, he's coming to do it again. But maybe if you've grown up in church, this may seem all too familiar to you. Imagine this, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder of heaven and earth, the creator, the Lord, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the one that was at lofted heights and saw a need and fleshed himself, walked among us, as a man, nailed every sin to the cross, died and was resurrected three days later in glorious fashion, fashion, sorry, commissioned us, equipped us with the Holy Spirit. That God, that God is coming again and he wants to recline at the table with us and serve us. What a glorious day where our maker gets to serve us. I can't describe to you in words what that be like, but I look forward to that day. And so if you leave here with nothing else, leave with that. That is a good gift, and that is good news to be served by our Creator and Lord. And the second part of the blessing section in verse 38 says, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So as was mentioned before, If the master were to leave, the servants were in charge. And what the servants would do is they would 
going three-hour shifts from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so the first shift was 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then the second was 9 to 12. The third was 12 to 3. And the fourth was 3 to 6. And I don't know about you, but maybe, you know, if you were in college or you're a, a new parent and you've tried to stay up late at night, I always find that second or third watch from like 9 to Three is like the hardest time to stay awake. It's just so difficult. Because before nine, you can fall asleep easy and you're well rested. And then after three, it's like you've pushed past the wall. You're like, I'm just up now, so I'm just going to push past it, right? But it's that middle section that's really difficult to stay awake. And Jesus is saying there's a blessing for those who persevere, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't always feel good, but you persevere and you're faithful then God has a blessing for you. And he doesn't, that those things don't go unnoticed. God sees your perseverance. He knows your heart and he knows. And so don't, don't feel like if you are persevering and you're going through something and it's difficult, God sees and there's a blessing coming for that. I just want to say that to encourage you. And then the last section of that three-tiered section is the warning. And it says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would have left his house to be broken into. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And I think what Jesus is getting at in this warning is that we are to not be living for ourselves. You You see, in my example, I had an expectation that my wife was coming home at 4.30. So I was living for myself all the way up until the last moment where I could sneak by and get my tasks done. But God actually doesn't want us to live for ourselves. When we surrender our lives to him, we begin to walk in obedience with him. We live for his kingdom and for his purposes. And so the first point that I want to make today, point number one, um, it says this in the form of a question, Am I prepared for Jesus to return? Am I prepared for Jesus to return? And I think the psalmist highlights this really well, the correct response. In Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, So teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. May we live with a sense of purpose and preparation in each day. May we not live for ourselves, but actually that we would live for the kingdom and for his purposes. And I want to say something because I know this is a heavy message and a harsh one to hear. I don't think the proper response is to elicit a forced emotional response. I think that would be the wrong thing to do after leaving here and hearing this message. I don't think your response is to be constantly forcing yourself to be excited. Okay, Jesus is coming. So that means I always have to keep up this level of heightened excitement and happiness because I think that's exhausting and I don't think that's what God wants. I'll be the first one to tell you that God is the God of the mountain and God of the valley. We serve him in the ups and in the lows. And there are times where it's easy to serve him and there's times where it's really difficult. But what I think this does is it serves as a reminder As we walk in obedience, this long-standing faithfulness with God, this is a reminder, and it's a helpful 
glance in the mirror to ask ourselves, as we all ask ourselves, am I living in a way that I'm prepared for the Lord to return? I think it's a helpful reflection point for each and every one of us to kind of ask ourselves these questions. And so we move into the next section where we, say, where we see Peter. Gotta love Peter. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Jesus annoyingly and brilliantly does not answer his question. <laughs> Moves right into the next section of the parable. <laughs> and he moves right into the next section of the parable. And so scholars are kind of debating who he's addressing. It is ambiguous. And I don't want to go into that for today, but I think for the purposes of today, we're going to function under the understanding that we are all implied in this. There is an application for all of us. And obviously, if you want to talk more about this afterwards, I would love to talk to you about that. But for the purposes of the day, we're going we're gonna to focus on that. And so we see the three-tiered section that I described earlier coming back into play. It comes back again. So Jesus is almost saying, Peter, I think you missed it the first time, so I'm going to say it in a different way, but the same structure again. He goes with command, blessing, and then warning. And so first he says this. He says, and the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will put over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. You see, what's interesting about Jesus' parable, particularly in reference to Peter, is that this is not new. Once again, we have seen this before. In John chapter 21, I don't know if you remember the story where Jesus asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course, Lord, I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. And he says that three times to Peter. And I think what Jesus is doing in that instance, and also in this instance, is reminding Peter of his focus. He says, are you living with that expectation for the kingdom of feeding my sheep? Are you feeding my sheep? Because if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. And we know that man cannot survive on bread alone. So this is not just physical food, but spiritual food. And so the second point that I want to make for today, the second point is, am I making disciples? Am I making disciples? That's the second point. And I mean, we could spend an entire sermon series on this point alone. And so I'm going to do my best uh, to highlight it. But Within the context of this parable, I think some helpful questions to ask are, are there people who are close enough to me that get to live life with me? Are there people that see my own personal struggles, that see my ups and my downs? Are there people that I am pouring into and investing in on a daily and a weekly basis? Do I have those types of people in my life? And I think if you do, then continue to invest in those people. And if you don't, I would say that to look at who's closest to you, your friends, your family, coworkers, people in your neighborhood, missional family, people that are closest to you that know you and that you can pour into and invest in. And I want you to hear me for a second because I know that this can seem a lot like a try harder message and I don't want that to be the case. 
And I'm not teaching a lack of self-care. I'm not saying run yourself ragged, never rest, just live for, for everyone else. That's not what I'm saying, but there is a part. And we do have a call because we know that we've been commissioned by God. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we know we have that command. And so I'm not preaching run yourself ragged, but that is an important part of the Christian walk. So that was the structure portion. Or sorry, that was the command portion. The blessing portion is this. It says, blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. You see, if we feed the flock, Jesus promises that we will gain favor with him, that he will trust us and give us more responsibility. And I don't know about you, but I would love to be in the favor of God. And I think that is also a good blessing. And so that is something to hold on to. And lastly, the elephant in the room, (laughs) the warning of the second section. My version says this. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And I think the severity of these words, what they do is they reveal Jesus' heart for his creation. They reveal how much he cares for the sheep and for the flock. And I think it shows that we, as leaders, have a responsibility. And it is one of those things that we hold before God in reverence. And the last thing that Jesus says in this parable. He says these words, the end of verse 48, he says this, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see, I've I've heard this before. I think Uncle Ben Parker from Spider-Man must have read this parable because in his dying words, He says, Peter, remember this, with great power comes great responsibility. I love that line. It's so good. (laughs) And I think what Jesus and Uncle Ben is getting at is, am I stewarding the gifts that God has given me? Am I stewarding the gifts that God has given me? And that's my third point for the day. So if you're taking notes, that was the third one. And, yeah, we just see the body is made up of many parts. We are all baptized in one spirit, but we're made up of many parts, and we each have a role and a function within the body, as 1 Corinthians 12 uh, tells us. And so it is important that you understand what are your gifts, what are your talents, what is it that God has placed on your heart as a desire and a passion, 
Because whatever that is, that is your call, and that is what you are to steward. And we all can't be the same. We all have to function within our areas of influence so that we are whole and complete. But you know the interesting thing about stewardship? And I think the beautiful thing about what Jesus does here at the end of this parable is that stewardship isn't actually a New Testament principle. It's actually something that dates back all the way to the beginning. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where God placed Adam in charge and he said, work the ground and keep it. And this was pre-fall, by the way. This wasn't post-fall. So this is actually part of our image-bearing, God-created design. We are to be stewards of what we have been assigned to. And I think what Jesus is doing here is reminding us that as we steward the gifts that we have been given, we actually become more whole and more complete. We actually become the word shalom, understanding that sense of wholeness and completeness. And we're coming back to that because the Lord desperately wants to return us to that restored state. I'm going to end um, in a few minutes, um, and Matt's going to come, and he's going to um, lead us in communion. But um, just before, before I close, I just want to say this. Um, I know messages like these can be hard to hear, and I know they can be, be challenging. Trust me, I've spent the last week and a half praying more than anything and repenting um, because I've, I've found I am a very selfish person, and this has very much so confronted a lot of the things um, that Jesus, I guess, would hope that would be confronting. If you have felt any sort of you know, conviction from the understanding that we talked about, maybe you felt the nudge of the Spirit, and you've just felt like there's something you need to do, um, I would encourage you. I'm going to be up at the back, and there's going to be some other people up at the back uh, for prayer. And I just want to say this before I close, that asking for prayer or receiving prayer is not actually a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. I think the greatest place of strength is humbly submitting yourself and saying, can you pray for me? And I would love nothing more than to do that. That would be my joy to pray for you and to encourage you and to strengthen you. And so if you feel as though you need to do that, I will be uh, up at the back to do that with you. Each week at Sinclair, we uh, gather around the table. Uh, thanks so much, Will. Uh, as well as preaching there, and it's a challenging word. What encourages me, uh, encourages me about the table is there's always room for each of us. Uh, 
Whether we come this morning, we think, I am full of life and Will's message was so great so I'm so passionate about Jesus and I just want to get out the door and save the world. Or whether we literally dragged ourselves here and we're floundering and we're falling. There's space around this table for you. It's interesting when Jesus is gathering, the, I was thinking as Will was preaching, when Jesus gathers that night with his disciples, we know that some were doing well and some were struggling. We often have this misty-eyed view of the scripture, which is, oh, the disciples, they were superhuman and they're amazing. And yet just a few verses after the meal, Peter's denying Jesus. You see, because we all need the table, because it reminds us we don't save ourselves. There is someone who has come to rescue us. And that's why Jesus, I think, gave a meal. One of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, says, Jesus didn't give a theory of the atonement. He gave them a meal, something tactile, so we can remember weekly, hopefully daily, what Jesus has done for us. As we participate in community each week, one thing we've started to adopt for the last couple of weeks is uh, maybe a more structured, liturgical approach to the table. Um, I grew up in the Anglican tradition, which I'm, as those who know me, very fond of still. And uh, they have a prayer of confession and assurance of pardon that they pray each week and say together as they take the elements. And I think for our culture, confession is very important. Because it reminds us that there are things in our life that are fractured and broken. And when we confess, what we're saying is, God, take this stuff that I know is broken in my life. And would you come and by your grace and forgiveness, heal me. That's what's going on. We get healed and set free to go again. See, what is important in Will's message this morning is the story is not over. As we gather around the table each week, remind ourselves of that. So I'd encourage you to say this uh, prayer along with me. It should be on the screen. I'd encourage us uh, to say it together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will, walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The scripture reminds us over and over again that as we confess... God is gracious and kind enough to pour out forgiveness and grace upon us. So St. Clair Community Church, would you receive this morning the words of God? Would you know that God is compassionate and gracious? He is slow to anger and abounding in love. God says, I will not always accuse you nor harbor anger forever. I will not treat you as your sins deserve or repay you according to your iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is my love for you, St. Clair. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. So receive that assurance which allows us to come to the table to take these elements.
On the night Jesus was betrayed, the scripture teaches us that he took some bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body. Each time you gather, eat this in remembrance of me.